welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. I am the lead pastor at Awaken. So glad to see you all. Um, We are in the book of John. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 9. If you don't have one and you want to have one, there are some black pew Bibles in the uh, seats in front of you. You can find John chapter 9. Um, As Josh mentioned, Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. That's the beginning of Lent. We're currently in the season of Epiphany. That's the season after Christmas where we celebrate the light of God in the world. We're going to find that in our passage this morning in John 9. And ironically enough, I don't know when the last time this happened, but did you guys know that Easter this year is on April Fool's and Ash Wednesday is on Valentine's Day? So when we get to talk about death and dying, we also get to talk about love because that's often what it feels like. Can I get an amen, Brother Micah? Yeah. So I don't know when that happened. Maybe somebody could look that up. Let us know the last time it happened, that April 1st and and, uh, February 14th. And I'm 41, you guys. I turned 41 yesterday. So I made it one more year. I made it one more year, and I have a lot of wisdom to share with you. So here we go. Uh, John 9. What's going to happen is I'm going to read this passage, and this is a long one. There's no way to do John 9 without just reading the entire chapter, which is 41 verses. Now, if you're an awakened regular, you're like, oh my gosh, that's a long time to stand, because typically I ask you to stand when we read the text, so I've got a creative solution. I'm going to read most of the story, and then kind of at like the dramatic point in the story, I'll ask you to stand, okay? So, here we go. John 9, starting in verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, and while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Shalom, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, and others said, no, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am that man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to uh, to go to Shalom and wash, and so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I do not know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who who had been blind, and now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But the others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man said, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for his parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is he the one that you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. 
That's why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Do you, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> this guy's good. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's like a mic drop right there. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Please stand if you would as we finish this story. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who will see, who become, for those who see will become blind. Pray with me. God, this morning we turn our attention to this story, which is 2,000 some years old. And it's our hope, it's my prayer, that somehow you would continue to reveal yourself to us through it. So wherever we find ourselves in the story, God, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would invite us, that you would um, shape us and mold us into the kinds of people that you always dreamt us to be, uh, people that love wholeheartedly and who uh, look more and more like you. I pray this in the strong name of Christ and all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> man, oh man, I love this story. This is like one of the, I say this every now and again about a story, but I wish I would have been there like when it happened, you know, like when the guy's like, why do you keep asking me this? Like, do you want to be his disciples too? It's one of those moments where everyone's like, you know, like giggling and all the Pharisees are getting angry. It just would have been fantastic, you know. For a guy who likes to challenge authority every now and again, that one would have been a good story to be in. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at, I'll just offer a couple of uh, introductory comments about how John has written this story. There's one part in particular that I was always really troubled by. And it just didn't, it didn't make sense to me. And I didn't think that, that God looked like this. Um, and so I just, I started digging. If, uh, if you ever find something in the Bible that shimmers or that really bothers you, or you kind of like, cause, you remember when, when, when you say the, a lab, does anyone have lab puppies when you're growing up? Like when you say their name, they always go, huh? My lab doesn't do that. I don't know why. I feel like I should get my money back. <laughs> Anyhow, if it ever makes you do that, stop and start digging because usually you find things that are interesting. So I want to just offer that. And then I want to spend most of our time on one question. And the question is, who knows what in this passage? There's all kinds of claims by almost every character in the story that they know something or they don't know something. And it's this interesting dialogue about knowledge, like, who knows what in the story and how do they know it? And we'll see, I think, that two different knowledge, two different ways of knowing kind of emerge. 
and one leads to more fruit than the other. And so we're going to spend most of our time talking about that. And then I'll offer you an opportunity just to sort of uh, reflect and observe on your own uh, life and, and faith and quest for things that are true, how you know something or what you know, what you claim to know. So let's start with a few observations. The first one, this is the problematic one, I think. It's uh, so that. Verse 4 <clears throat> says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, or verse 3, but this happened so that the works of God might be on display. Right? Now, if you take that at face value, the man was blind so that God could be glorified. If you peel that back a little bit and you start to think about the layers, God needs to be glorified, and God on a Saturday morning is like, you know, I really want to be on display. I want like my power and glory to be on display. How are we going to make that happen? Trinity, help me out here. Um, Spirit, son, what do you guys think? And they say, I know, let's make a guy blind his whole life, and then you can heal him so that your, dis- your glory's on display. So let's make a guy suffer his whole life so that your glory can be on display. Or let's have some tragic thing happen in someone's life so that your healing or your love or your glory could be on display. Now, I don't know about you, but for me personally, I'll just speak for, my, for, for, for me and not for you, I have a real problem with that because it makes God seem to be inconsistent with the person of Jesus that I see in the text. Where God is picking and choosing who's going to suffer and how they're going to suffer so that God can be on display. That seems a little maniacal. Um, it seems like God is, uh, let's go with insecure. And needs, right? And I'm... I'm Joking a little bit, but when people suffer and they have hard things happen in their life and people say, well, that, that's so that God can... Often I have heard from people, like, I'm not interested in following that God. If that's what God is like, it seems just kind of mean. And so I was like, How, what, what is going on here? Because that, that doesn't seem to square. So I started digging. In the Greek, there's something called a hina clause. And basically, when a henna clause happens in the text, it offers the interpreter a couple of options as to how to translate it. And one of the options is, so that, cause and effect, which would make some sense, because in Jesus' day, the rabbis often believed or assumed that if somebody suffered, it had to do with sin. That's why they're all asking, who sinned, him or his parents, because it's assumed, right? So that's a possibility, and it's not outside of the the realm of, yeah, you could translate it that way. But it doesn't have to be translated that way. It could also be rendered like, this man was born blind, period. And God's glory was on display when he healed him. Right? It's not that one needs the other. Maybe you could say it this way. Uh, As always is the case when Jesus is involved, Even evil and the worst of suffering can be the place where God's glory is revealed and on display. Which is to say that in our deepest sufferings and in our deepest hurt and in our deepest places of pain, God, good news, this is the good news of the gospel, that we often find God at work in those places redeeming, restoring, and making something beautiful out of that which is broken. Not because God needed that to happen so that God could be glorified, but because that's just who God is. Can I get an amen, Brother Micah? 
And so as I, I'm reading that and I'm like, yes, that rings true to me. That seems like it's consistent with the character of God that we see in Jesus. That God doesn't need this man to be born blind and suffer his whole life so that he can be on display and be glorified. But rather, that's exactly where we find God in the midst of the deepest pain and in the deepest sufferings and in the deepest longings at work making something beautiful out of that which was broken. Sermon's over, but I'm just getting started. So that's one piece. I, I, I just, as, I, I thought, you know, it would be, I'd be remiss not to touch on that because for me, that was a big one. It was like, ah, I don't, I get, there's got to be a better way to explain that. And I think there is. So I'll offer that to you. You could say to me, I think you're wrong, Micah. That's okay. That's all right. Truly it is. I'll also note that John uses light and dark over and over and over again. I've said this before. In, in John's gospel, this metaphor, this motif of light and dark, and we see it in verse 4 when Jesus says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so John says, Jesus is the light of the world. This is epiphany. This is why we celebrate it. Then he takes characters in the story and he connects them to the light and the dark motif. So the blind guy who spent his whole life in the dark begins to be illuminated. We see that he's the only one in the story who's seeing the grace of God at work and on display. He gets the light. And the people who should be enlightened, the religious Pharisees, the teachers of the law, John makes it pretty clear that these are the ones who are, in fact, spiritually blind. They cannot see the grace of God at work in front of them because it doesn't fit into their religious systems. Woe unto you, Jesus says in another place in Matthew. Woe unto you when God's grace is on display and it's given away freely and you deny it because it doesn't fit your systems. Because it doesn't fit your cognitive way of knowing or your rules and your regulations and your interpretations of Torah. Woe to you. We'll, get to, we'll, dig, we'll dig into that a little bit more. But light and dark is in this passage. And then John uses this classic like rhetorical device. It's a literary device. Plato uses it with Socrates where it's like you set up the, the wise and the foolish or the ignorant and the, the confident, right? And everybody knows, of course, who the ignorant is and who the confident is but then it gets flipped. And in our passage, the ignorant one is the blind guy. He's blind. He's a beggar. He's the lowest of the low. And of course, the confident and the braggart in the story is the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And yet the tables get turned, right? And who's the wise one and who's the foolish? The ignorant blind man is the wise one. And the foolish ones are the religious authorities who know all the right answers and who have the text and Torah and all the tradition and all the stories and yet they can't see it. So John just holds it up and is like, here it is, friends. There's a proverb about that too, right? That the wise become foolish, or the wise become foolish, and the foolish become wise. Who knows what? Let's spend the rest of our time here. Um, so my wife and I, we have three children, and when we were pregnant with our first, Hadley, um, we read everything we could get our hands on. And by that, I mean the proverbial we, right? Like, I had, Laura had a vested interest in this deal because there was an alien life form invading her body and sucking all of her energy out of her. Whereas I was like, I think you're pregnant. You're starting to show, right? I'm, I'm on the outside literally looking at this whole thing. 
So we're, we are reading and uh, we're getting, you know, uh, we're going to classes and, the, you know, the certain methods of birthing and all this other kind of stuff. And, like, we knew stuff, guys. Like, we, we, I felt like we were a good team in this and we were ready to birth this child and then to this baby. But you all know where this is headed, right? Then the baby is born and you realize all the things you do not know. Yeah, right? Because your experience of birthing a child and then raising a child, and again, I, I recognize I am not speaking from a seat of knowledge here, right, about birthing ch- children, right? Okay. But you realize, like, your experience of those things, while in some cases they confirm what you knew or cognitively you read about and you had in your mind, but sometimes those two things are at odds with one another, and you realize that what you learned or what you read about isn't necessarily how it actually plays out in real time and in real life. And your experience of something as real transforms or challenges your assumptions about what you said you knew. Are you all tracking with me? You've all had this happen in our lives. And I think what we have here in this story is a classic case of those two kinds of knowledge. Where what one experiences and testifies to as true and real about the transformative nature of God. And then what one argues for wholeheartedly and vehemently about the interpretation of the holy text which keeps you out and me in, gets challenged. So who knows what? Let's just walk through this passage and look at a few different places where John, he's playing with who's knowing what here, right? Verse 2, he says, the disciples don't know. Jesus' followers, good Jewish boys who grew up learning Torah, they're asked, who sinned, him or his parents? And they're like, we have no idea. We can't get on the inside of someone's heart and determine cause or effect or intent Verse 3 says that Jesus knows. That Jesus knows. He says it's neither this man nor his parents. Jesus is the one in the story who can judge rightly the insides of someone's heart. We could just stop there, say it again, rinse and repeat over and over and over again. We, the disciples, cannot determine the interior life and judge it for its truth, but Jesus is the only one in the story who can. Which is to say, you and I, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, grabbed from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and took something that was never intended to be ours, which is the ability to judge and be the final judges. God alone holds that spot. So the disciples don't know, but Jesus does know. The text goes on. The blind man knows who he is in verse 9. He says, I know who I am because it was my life. I was the one begging. You were the one walking by me. I know it was me. Because they're like, was it the blind guy? Was it him? I don't know. It kind of looks like him, but we're not sure. And he's like, it was me. I know it was my life. I experienced it. He also knows intimately of his experience with Jesus. He says, he put spit on the ground and put, made it into mud and then put it on my eyes and touched my face and I heard his voice say, go and wash in the pool. I heard it. I had an intimate experience, an encounter with this man and it's changed me. I can now see. I know. That's a different kind of knowing. The religious leaders in verse 15, they know that healing on the Sabbath is wrong. And they know that you are not to do this. And a good Jewish rabbi would follow Torah and would not heal on the Sabbath because the Sabbath has rules that you follow. Jesus seems to not give a rat's rear end about those rules. But they know Jesus is not to 
heal on the Sabbath. And that's how they know that he's a sinner and he does not speak on behalf of God. We are disciples of Moses, they say. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this guy, we don't know where he's from. We don't know what he's talking about. We don't know what kind of messages he's saying. We don't know if he's interpreting Torah right. He's healing people on the Sabbath. Our pets had their fallen off. They know who's right and who's wrong in this situation. And they make it clear. They tell the man who's healed, you are steeped in sin from birth. We know it. So get out. They know. The religious people. The leaders. The preachers. The pastors. The priests. They know. And this is maybe the best moment in the story. When they bring him back. Because they actually don't know. And they're like, okay, play it again. Just run it again here. Because who healed you and how did it happen? And he's like, listen, I've told you this before. He spit. He made mud. He put it in my eyes. He told me to wash it. I wash. I can see. Next question. Like, what's so hard? Like, you guys are so interested in this. It sounds like you want to follow this guy. At which point, everyone's like, ooh. And they just lose it. The Pharisees, they're like, you, out, disrespect for authority, you're gone. The text ends with Jesus. What does it actually say? Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, few observations about knowing. One, knowledge begins with humility, not pride, not arrogance. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, this message, this wisdom is given that knowledge begins with humility, not pride, not arrogance, not rigid confidence that we have got it and we know and we know who's in and who's out and what's sin and what's not and how God speaks and who he speaks to. I find it fascinating in this passage that the number of people who claim to know something based on their judgments and what they see literally who end up not knowing anything about what's true in the story and then the people who can't see who say, I don't know, or I just, I will testify to what I experienced, end up with the deep spiritual truths. And I will say that my experience in church and with religious people has been consistent with this story and the people in it. Especially religious people who have positions of power, who hold so tightly to what they know without qualification or humility often do so missing God right in front of their faces and the grace of God on display for all to see. And yet it gets missed. It gets swept aside. It, gets, it goes unnoticed. The Pharisees claim to know based on their rules and their regulations and their sacred texts. And I'm not, I'm not trying to undermine sacred texts, right? It, they are important. But there is no room for anything other than what they already know. They're hanging on to it like this, white-knuckled. There's no space in their framework for expansion 
and for more of God than they already have. They've got it all. They don't need any more. And if you know everything there is to know about God, who are you? God. And if you don't know everything there is to know about God, what are you? Human. And if you're human, which I would safe to say we're all in that camp, (laughs) then it is logically inconsistent and foolish for you to think that there is not more of God that you might come in contact with as your life progresses. It is foolish for you to believe that you've got it and that God can't expand your knowledge of God because you've got all that you need. Why do we hold so tightly and get so anxious when people think and say things like, I feel like God's like changing my view on something. Good, you're growing, you're open to more of who God is. That's what life is, friends. I mean, if you're done and you've got it and you have all you need, then just cash your chips in and see you later, right? But you're here, you're alive, you're breathing. And God is still out there. God is still revealing God's self. God is still offering more and more and more and more of God's self to you if you have eyes to see it. Knowledge begins with humility. If you were to try to take like sand from an ocean and you hold it and you like, the harder you squeeze it, the more it escapes your grasp. So like you can just white knuckle it and it just keeps coming out until you're left with like hardly anything but if you hold your hands open and you just say I'll take some of that and if that represents wisdom and knowledge and knowing of the divine when you hold it with an open hand friends let the party begin there's more you can hold more well except when you dump it on the floor (laughs) It's a good thing we have a church cleanup day coming, right? (laughs) Posture matters. Mental posture and how you hold the things you believe, it, it matters. I say this all the time, and you probably get sick of me saying it. How you believe what you believe is as important as what you believe. What I'm saying is posture matters. And so when we hold our hands open and we say, God... I'm open, give me more, help me understand, help me see more. I want to believe that God is just that good, that God would say, oh, I've been waiting for you to ask, here's some more, instead of, nah, kind of like me, I'm not going to give any more away. God is not stingy. That's not what we see revealed in Christ. If anything, the opposite is true. So knowledge, wisdom, begins with humility and posture. So if you've ever been one of those people who around religious and spiritual things have held on tightly and who have pounded the table and said, no, it is this way and nothing else, with a spirit of exclusion, I would just ask you to consider what's happening in this story. And I'm not saying don't believe anything, and I'm not saying throw all your convictions out the window. I'm not saying that. So don't quote me and don't tell me I said that because that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is how you hold it matters, which leads me to my second observation. When we're talking about spiritual things, 
The damage that can be done is catastrophic. So we should offer and, and w- counsel and interact with people as it relates to spiritual matters with great sobriety, like no drinks allowed. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like We all have the opportunity in our workplaces and with our kids and maybe even in this community to lead and to offer our convictions or our thoughts, our beliefs on spiritual matters. You don't have to go far in this passage to recognize the harm that can be done when we're talking about spiritual things because it's the essence of who we are. We are nothing if we're not spiritual beings. And so when we're talking about spiritual things and how we offer them and how we interact with one another, I just want to raise that as a, hey, we should probably do this with great care and sobriety and humility because we can cause great harm if we do it poorly. Like the, the guy born blind. Can you imagine you're, you're blind your whole life You're trying to figure out why everyone else can see and you can't, and the church is telling you it's because you're a sinner and it's your fault. Like the kind of damage that would do to a a self, a person, or to the parents. Can you imagine having a child who was sick or ill and you were told it was your fault? And so your whole life you're spending trying to figure out what it is that you've done and begging God to forgive you for it. How awful would that be? That's what's happened here. That's exact, and, and maybe I'm reading into it and you're saying, oh, Micah, you've gone too far. But I'm a parent and I know what that, I, I can imagine what that would feel like. So when we enter into relationship and conversation with people and we have a chance to lead or offer wisdom in some way, shape, or form, take a deep breath, proceed with care. Lastly, I'll say this, last observation, Jesus as the good shepherd. And I, 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 I say this because I think it highlights exactly what I'm, where we're going to end. John 10, he tells the story about Jesus as the good shepherd, or Jesus tells the parable of the good shepherd, effectively saying this is what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, God is like a good shepherd who goes and finds the one lost sheep. And it sets it up, and you read John 10, and you're thinking to yourself as the reader, like, man, I hope God is that good. Like, what if God was like that? And the previous chapter is basically saying, we don't need to argue. Because Jesus, the the church, the, the spiritual community, throws him out, the man born blind. And verse 35 says, and when Jesus heard that they threw him out, and when he found him, which means he went looking for him like a shepherd would. We don't have to argue this esoterically. We don't have to try to prove that it's true. We just, Jesus goes and finds this man, and this man experiences God as a shepherd who cares for and finds the one who's been cast out. So what kind of knowing do we look for? What kind of knowing do we long for? And what kind of posture do we have to assume to receive that kind of knowledge? Friends, it's easier to read books. It's easier to get something passed down from somebody that you trust about what you believe about God or spiritual things. It's a lot easier to read it in books or to hear other people tell you what to believe. It seems to me that this guy in this story 
has a life-changing, real encounter with the living God, and it transforms him from the inside out. He says, I was blind, and now I can see. I was greedy, and now my hands are open because I experienced God as a generous God. I was addicted, and now I'm free because I experienced God's power and healing touch. I was hungry for power, and now I want to serve because I experienced God as a servant who give his life for all. You see what's happening here. I experience these things, and I know them as true, and they change me from the inside out. That's primary. When we're talking about what do I know about God? What do I look for? What am I longing for? What do I desire? I want an encounter with the living God. I don't want to read about it in a textbook. I don't want to read about it in the Bible. Though I could have that encounter through the Bible, you could argue, yes, I get that. Do you see what I'm saying? When's the last time you said, God, I want an encounter with you? Like, I want to experience you and your love or your grace or your generosity or your healing or your power as real in my own life so that I can say, I was blind and now I can see. I was greedy and cared about only myself, and then I experienced grace from you, and now I experience, I want to be a more generous person. Because that kind of stuff, when people say, my life was a mess, and I was mean, or angry, or racist, and the love of God changed my heart. You can't Are we going to say, nope, that's not true, get out? No. That stuff will preach, y'all. That's the real deal. When people come in contact with the divine and they're changed because of it. And I just want to say out loud from the front that that's the kind of knowing that we want to be primary at Awaken. We want other knowledge to support, absolutely. We, we trust that the Spirit of God is with us and empowering us and leading us to truth. We trust that the Scriptures God's still using to reveal God's self. We trust tradition and the faithful people who have come before us and after us. Yes, 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 yes. And what do I want and long for most? I, I want people to line up down this aisle to just say, I'll testify because God changed my life. And do we ask for that? Do we want that? Do we long for that? Do we desire that? Or do we desire knowledge that we can grab and we can proof text and we can write it all down and then say, nope, that's not how God works. Because what happens when God changes somebody's life who we didn't expect God to change and we're like, ah, I thought they were out. And, but yet there's fruit and they seem to be filled with the spirit and gosh, it seemed good to the spirit in us. That's Acts chapter 15, something like that. So what do you want? What do you desire and why? What kind of knowledge do you crave and why? And I would suggest that we see an example of a blind guy who has intimate knowledge of an encounter with the divine and it changes who he is and it changes people around him. And I would say that as a community is an example of what we should be, not should, I don't want to say should, what I want to invite us to pray for, to long for, to say out loud, God, we want to know you and you alone. We want to be able to say, I was blind and now I see. I was greedy and now I'm generous. Not because of me, but because of your work in me.
That takes humility and surrender. God, here I am. Hineni, I want to know you more. I surrender. So will you do that today? Will you take that step towards that? God, I surrender. I want to know you more. I want an encounter with you. Whatever level of faith you come from, however much you can muster, take one step towards that. I want an encounter with the living God. What would happen if these lives in this community were changed and transformed by the power and the love of God in the worlds that we affect? I mean, that's, that's a lot of potential for good news and love in the world. And if you think that we don't need any more of that, then you can go buy your donuts and I'll see you next week. But if you think we need more of that, then let's get to it. Let me offer a word of prayer and offer you an opportunity to maybe consider that. God, here we are. And I pray that in these next few moments of silence, as we carve out just a few quiet moments to reflect, that we would, with great courage and humility, approach you and make our requests known. God, I want to be healed. God, I want to be more generous. God, I want to be less judgmental. God, I want to be more gracious. I want there to be more space in my heart for others than less. Whatever the request is, whatever the longing is, whatever, whatever the desire might be, I'm going to give you just a, a moment of silence to ask God for that. So Holy Spirit, come, speak to us. As we take a few moments to respond, uh, our prayer team is available on my right and your left for any need you might have that you'd want prayer for. They'd be glad to pray with you. And we're going to sing a couple songs. This first one is just a continuation of this desire. Um, it's new to us, but if you catch on, I invite you to sing. Uh, before we do that, I want to invite you to pray this prayer that Jesus invites us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Someday, someday you should sit up here in the front and just listen to you all. It's lovely. Um, I'll give that to you for free. It's good. As you go, be reminded that the Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord lifts up his face to shine upon you and is gracious unto you. The Lord lifts up his countenance to you and gives you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Grace and peace, my friends. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.